Welcome to Dog Training Disrupted, where I retrain your brain and introduce you to the world of cognitive behavioral therapy for dogs over the age of six months. I would like to say I have the coolest guest on this episode, but actually I'm his guest, and it ends up being just this really interesting conversation. So I thought I would share it with you as my episode for my podcast as well. Ian Tolson is a podcaster at Successful Solutions, and we all know how solution-oriented I am, and he is an expert on habits. Ian works with humans to change behaviors driven by habits. He studied habits, the psychology behind them, and he offers a course on understanding habits. So we thought it would be fun to chat about how our professions connect and the similarities between dogs and humans in respect to behaviors driven by habits. So to change dogs' behaviors, we need to recognize both their positive and their negative habits. We cannot only focus on the negative habits. By understanding and recognizing cues, triggers, thought patterns, and what generates those, we can change behavior by changing perception of the need to follow a habit. Why is this important? Because perception is everything. And when we change perception, we change behavior. As with humans, we cannot change situations. We simply change our attitude toward them, and this changes our behavior. And only CBT is designed in this manner. Only CBT changes perception to change behavior. So this is a pretty long chat, but it's a super fun one, and it's informative. Be sure to stay tuned for my chat following the chat with Ian, where I give some suggestions on how to recognize triggers and habits in your daily life with your dog and how to use those to change your dog's perception. Hello, I'm Billy Groom, your host and expert in canine cognitive behavioral therapy for over three decades. I'm going to jump right into this chat with Ian. (laughs) Great. All right. So we have Billy on here today, and this is a fantastic interview. I've been talking with Billy. We've had two Zoom calls. We connected through LinkedIn, and everything has gone really well. I love her experience with dogs, how long she's been working with them, and how it is a difference from the mainstream media, you could say, when it comes to training and expertise, because she does it very differently. But the more you listen to her, you, you the more you understand, the more you realize that it's really spot on. So I'm pleased to introduce Billy on here today. <laughs> hey, Ian, how are you? So good to be here. Yeah, I'm yeah, glad. Just having a chat. It's just so great. I've, I've, I've loved chatting with you. It's <laughs> so interesting how similar our approaches are and thoughts and working with people and working with dogs. Yes, yes. It's fantastic to hear your thoughts on things too, because it's like all this information you have is is very, I find you communicate it very well. and when you are piecing the different parts together, it really helps me understand more on habits. And I love that aspect because it's an ongoing learning session (laughs) to learn. It is. (laughs) It is. It's, it's funny how um, emotions and the reason why people do a behavior, I would say, um, 
people are probably more complicated. Dogs never do anything for no reason. And I love your your five habits and how you talk about those because you can relate those right over to what I do. So I use cognitive behavioral therapy instead of conditioning. And cognitive behavioral therapy really does focus on the reason behind why a behavior is happening or a feeling or why they're doing it. And it it changes perception to change behavior instead of just focusing on the behavior. And I think that's a lot when you get into habits. People have a habit for a reason. They might not even know why they have that habit for a reason. They might not even know if they want to change it. You're spot on. And I want to open this up with, for you, if you could briefly describe the parts of having an animal, how it's acting with different situations, would you say there's a kind of cookie cutter idea of saying, well, the dog, the, the dog will act this way because of this reason. Is there like a real A or B type of situation or is it there's 75 reasons a dog will act a certain way and you have to connect the dot to the one reason why he's acting that way? B, answer B. Okay. There's no one right. There's no, <laughs> there's no one right way to work with a dog and there's no one reason. So that is why you, that's, well, one, that's why I love what I do, the way I work with dogs, because it's really gets to the asking the questions, which the way my formula works is obviously with people, you can just ask them questions, but with people, they lie, or a lot of times people don't know. But when you have a formula and you're working with dogs, you can find out those answers through the method that I have created. So the reason a dog is doing a behavior will determine what method you you use to address it. If you don't like that behavior for some reason, say um, something that's socially unacceptable, just like what a person would do that you would deal with. They might have a socially unacceptable habit, right? So you can't just tell them it's wrong. If it works for them and they like it and they're doing it, they're going to keep doing it, right? So dogs, if if a dog is is doing a behavior because they don't know right from wrong. They just simply don't know. They haven't been taught. They're a puppy. Then you would use conditioning methods. But if they know that behavior is wrong or if that behavior has always worked for them, like, like a street dog has learned growling keeps other dogs away from their food, for example, then you can't just tell them something is wrong. So it's very similar to people in that sense. So their behaviors are could be stemmed from something that they learned. And so they just do it automatically. They just automatically will do it, that, which is a routine or a habit. So I tend to use the word routine more in my profession. So a dog has a, um, they might be routine driven or based on learned behavior, they will do a certain behavior, which I, I guess is a habit. And I might start incorporating that word habit into it. So it's not dissimilar, but when, to get back to your question, yes, when (laughs) we do have to figure out why the dog is doing a behavior, but that might occur as as we're working with the dog. We might not know whether that dog is feeling fear or whether he just seriously doesn't like a guy with a beard or whether he's, whether it's fear or whether it's, you know, what it comes from, but that doesn't mean we can't work with them. We, we start working and we learn that as we go through it. 
So conditioning methods are more teaching right from wrong. So that's why they're so great with puppies. So you're rewarding good behavior and discouraging unwanted behavior. You're assuming you're starting with a clean slate. But as with what you do and talk about habits, people already have those habits. It's already in their head for whatever reason or whatever experience. And, and they're doing those behaviors and it could be triggered by all sorts of different things, which you and I talked about actually last time we chatted. We talked about those five reasons or triggers. Yes, yes, we did. And, you know, I I want to go over the the five things that we're talking about. And I am, I also have a follow-up question in relation to what you're saying when we get, when we dig into those that I would love to, to understand more because you have the expertise on dogs. And I think that is informational by itself, which has a world of beauty to it. (laughs) So as we were, yeah, you're welcome. So as we (laughs) were talking about the five different things that will, the word is called trigger or cue. This is something that initially causes someone to start doing a habit. And most of the time when we're looking at our habits, they are unconscious because we initially did it for a reason, but after so many years, they become ingrained into us and there's been studies where brain brain scans show that the neurological activity that is occurring is so strong that it's almost impossible for someone to fight what is occurring. And there's some really good stories about how someone who started drinking socially turns into an alcoholic or families that go and eat fast food once or twice are now eating it three or four times a week. It all started from this Mm -hmm. one thing that occurred where the the guy was drinking socially with friends and the family mm-hmm. was just trying to save some time and over over these periods of years what'll occur is they'll either be the time of day will take as a trigger or a cue and these are all really important the place it will be a trigger or a cue we'll notice people will drink at a bar or they'll work out mm-hmm. at a gym those are mm-hmm. super obvious statements But when you are breaking down why you're doing a habit and how you're trying to break out of it, paying attention to the location or place becomes almost more important than why you're driving around in the first place. Beyond that, it is people. So other people that you're around, drinking buddies is a good example of this when it comes to drinking. And families, like we are talking about when they're going and getting family for their food, that is the, the, the reason why they're doing that. The last two are the situation that was happening previous to the event that was occurring. And then there's the emotional state someone is in. And this usually comes up in the form of when we're talking about bad habits, stress, anxiety, depression. When someone's feeling that, then they go eat the ice cream or they're eating the junk food or they're consuming the, the drugs. They, they were in an emotional state and they're using this form of food, alcohol, or substance 
to cover that pain or anxiety. And so these is a, this is a brief overview of everything that we're going to be going into throughout this. So if just keep listening to this and more of this will make sense as we keep talking about it. <laughs> I, I love this. It, yeah, this is great. I just do want to pop back. Yeah. That that is so interesting that you say over such a long period of time, you were talking mm-hmm. about, you know, it just started out with one, oh, let's, you know, we're in a hurry, let's go to McDonald's. And then it just, oh, we've been there before, let's go again. And then it becomes a habit. This is why counter conditioning, which is another form of a conditioning method, can, can be effective because it, we talked about this earlier, uh, you and I, over time, repetition and desensitization and association, these type of things. So there's lots of different methods that, that can work. I use cognitive behavioral therapy, which would skip all the way to your last example, your one with the mindset. Where was that mindset when that behavior? So if you, I love that you talked about food on that one, because I'll use that as an example a lot. So people, there's a difference between somebody eating a bag of potato chips in the evening because they simply just have no idea that it's crappy and they have no idea why they should be eating an apple instead. And as soon as they're provided with that education, well, an apple will do this for you, make you feel better. And then it only has so many calories and a bag of potato chips has this many calories. They'll just change. So that's not really a, that's just education, which is different than cognitive behavioral therapy for you're going to know it's wrong to eat that bag of potato chips, you know, you should be eating an apple, but, and someone can tell you that, but you don't always make that decision, right? It's, it's, it's more of a mindset and an emotion that you're eating that bag of potato chips. And even though you know it, it's a habit and you just do it. And that's where I step in with the dogs because they might know that we've told them through regular conditioning methods that they don't, we don't want them to do that, or they might know it's wrong, but they either don't care or they just have so much fear or an emotion. So when I say don't care, it would be like a silly adolescent dog that's grabbing your sock and running around the house and they know it's wrong, but they don't care because it's fun, (laughs) you know, (laughs) versus, um, you know, a dog that can't help, but, um, you know, pee or lunge or bite just because they're scared and they're nervous and it's what's what's worked for them and it's their go-to or they hide. So that is when you would would need to really address the reason why they're doing that behavior and change that perception. And then they decide on their own. They make those decisions. They're provided with you're changing, literally changing their mindset. So the other ones are great too. That one just really stuck in my mind because you can even see it in some of the the diets that are coming out or the eating, um, you know, Noom. Noom talks a lot about that, changing your mindset so that you make good decisions and you make good choices and you learn why and you change your lifestyle. It's not just about, this is your meal plan for the week. Here, eat this. 
Yeah, it's totally spot on what you're saying. And it, what you said about the time in relation to someone, this happens over months and years. And the thing about this transition, like you're talking about with noon and they're changing their meal plans is there's an analogy that I like to compare habits to. And it is thinking of them as a tree because a tree will grow its roots. It'll go further and further down. And what happens is when people start doing a habit and they've been doing it for two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 15 years, it is, they have this whole tree that's already grown. And the problem that people run into is they are literally trying to chop the tree down in one day from one swing of the ax. And they're like, well, that didn't work. I give up. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they do. Yes, you do need patience. Patience and repetition, yes. Yeah, and I'm assuming that's similar with dogs. What you're talking about with, I'm assuming the aggressive dog that we talked about earlier, it didn't happen overnight. You didn't change its behavior in a day or two. It took time, I'm sure. That is interesting because it's a big thing, you know, you need patience and repetition, but sometimes patient and repetition is a very long go. Um, I do find because CBT, canine CBT, I can only speak for canine CBT, it changes their perception and allows them to change their behavior instead of changing their perception through repetition. So for example, um, you know, getting them to associate a treat uh, when they see something scary and you keep giving them a treat because they like a treat. And so you keep giving them a treat and then they learn over time. It can be very long. And also the next time that they see that, if it's getting back to your, to the habits, if what scares them, let's say a bicycle, they might get used to seeing a bicycle in that park or on that street. But then as soon as they go to another park or another street, you're starting from scratch again because you haven't changed their perception of their bike, the person on a bike. You've just got them comfortable at that time in that area with that bike. Again, having said that, I know I keep saying this, but there's not one right method for a dog, but conditioning methods don't change that perception. They don't provide the skills that allow the dog to work it through and work it through for themselves that they don't need that behavior in order for the same outcome. So the same outcome occurs. The bicycle did not run them over. But those skill sets are taught at different times. And I think that's a lot. um, You have to work with them. You have to start with all the roots and everything else and establish those platform skills and establish. And it doesn't take that long. It really doesn't because my method, I've been doing it for three decades. It doesn't take long. And once you establish those uh, skills that then they're transferable to everywhere, whether it's a place or whether it's a different person. So that gets into to the habits that you're talking about when you're talking about different places or different people. If, if you have your same transferable skills that go to all of them, then it, then it, uh, 
it's not like you're starting from scratch and something new each time, which is hard to break a habit. Like you said, if you're used to um, doing a bad habit in these different places, if you fix it in one, you need to be able to take that brain space. You need to be able to take transferable skills to a different a different one and a different, but it can't only be that McDonald's that you don't go to, I guess would be an example, for example. But I, I've been thinking if I can just switch gears a little bit, because it's, it's a little bit difficult talking about the, the dogs in the, in the same, well, I actually, I use human examples a lot when I work with clients, which I love and they love, they love the human examples because it just relates to them. But the one I've been thinking about since the last time we spoke was, um, I have this hugely bad habit. I just drop my shit everywhere. Like I, <laughs> I honestly, <laughs> you know how they say have a place for everything and everything has a place that has no meaning to me. None. Zero. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just put my keys here or my, I drop my clothes there or my socks there. I've got like my brush over there and like, oh my God, <laughs> like I have, like I am Hurricane Billy, honestly, like I have... <laughs> And I <laughs> so, <It's> going wild. <laughs> yeah, like I just I don't get off on things having a place and everything being perfectly put away. Like it just does nothing for me. I don't see the point in it, except that then I go to try to find things and I can't really find <laughs> anything. Right. It's like I know it's somewhere. I know it's got to be. And, you know, and then I think back, when was the last time I had it? Where would I have put it? What jacket pocket would it be in? Or, you know, um, would it be in the bathroom versus the bedroom? And so my brain is going through all this. But if someone said to me, like conditioning methods, um, you know, if you if you make a place for everything and put it in it for a week, you know, I'll I'll give you a hundred bucks or something like that. I wouldn't do it. It wouldn't mean much to me. I don't really. It wouldn't change. I might do it and take that hundred bucks, but it doesn't change my perception. It doesn't change the way I really feel about it inside. I still feel just fine with dropping my shit everywhere, even though I might do it for a week. So conditioning methods are more if you're catching the person before they have that bad habit or that thought pattern or that reason, and you're instilling these good habits. Clearly, that didn't happen for me <laughs> when it comes right. to dropping and, my stuff everywhere. Yeah. But here's here's one thing, one question I do want to ask you about it. Do you believe that that process works of having a place for your things? Yes, but in order for me to take that habit on, yeah, I would have to click my brain over before it it's it. it what wouldn't solve it is a conditioning method of saying, if you, if you create a place and put everything there, I'll give you a hundred dollars. That wouldn't solve it for me. Secondly, having a place for everything, I see the value in it, mm -hmm. but I don't follow through and actually use that. Like people will say to me, okay, let's get you a shoe rack. Okay, great. So there's a shoe rack over there, but <laughs> I don't correlate with putting my shoes on it. What would work and does work. Uh -huh is prior my brain catching my brain while I still have that object on my body or in my hand uh -huh. before I put it down my brain has to click over uh -huh. and say it would be in my better interest uh 
not because I'm getting a reward or not because somebody's telling me to, but it would be in my better interest uh-huh. to put this key on the key, key rack. Okay. Say keychain or the shoe on the shoe rack, because then when I go to find it, I'm going to know where it is. So my brain has to click that over itself and I have to see the value in that. The reward in the value is that when I go to find that object <laughs> tomorrow, it's there. Nobody, there wasn't any other reward except for the one that made sense in the situation. And that's cognitive behavioral therapy. That it changed my perception and my mind frame. So I made that decision myself to do it. Not because the shoe rack was there or not because somebody told me it was a good idea or not because I was frustrated tomorrow because I couldn't find anything, but because I learned how to switch my brain over first before I put it, put it down. I saw the value in doing that. Right. And everything you're saying is spot on. And that really, that's what I do with dogs. That's how I learned to do that with dogs instead of, you know, giving them a, a treat or a reward every time they did something right caught i can catch their brain before their brain goes into that thought pattern of i'm going to do something so for me i catch my brain before i just randomly throw (laughs) (laughs) there goes my clothes no um so but what's interesting about what you're saying is it is like from from and correct me if i'm wrong on this from what i'm getting from what you're saying the it, it does follow a certain strategy of cue or trigger routine reward. The reward simply isn't the plate of cookies or because it's simple, it's that you get the thing that you're wanting, which is making it easier for you to find your stuff. Yes, the reward is inherent. Mm -hmm. The reward is sort of why you're doing it, but even though you know, Mm. it it didn't, someone could say to me, give the reward. I have to actually change my perception and my brain space first. It has to come from me. And I, so that's what I've learned how to do with dogs is have them not go into that panic mode where they feel they need to pee or bite. You literally stop the brain from going into that place. And that's not done with a contrived reward because you can't use, you you can't use the reward um, like, I guess, going back to my example of being able to find my key tomorrow. You can't bring that over to today when I just happen to randomly put my key somewhere. You can't bring that reward over. The reward comes later and it's inherent in in doing the the action of me putting my key where it's supposed to be. It's It's inherent. So with a dog, they have to literally not have their brain go into that fear mode or into that mode where they feel they need to do that behavior. And then once their brain never goes there and they see, oh, I don't actually have to lose my ever loving mind at the end of a leash in order for that dog to not come over to me. Then they, they, they learn that on their own and they choose on their own to see that. So you don't need to give them a contrived reward like a treat because they're they're seeing it themselves. They're going through it. Their their brain is working through that process and they're learning it for themselves. I you see. can say good dog or give them the treat, but that's not the reason why they're changing their no. behavior. It's just like me. I'm not changing my behavior because someone put a shoe rack or because someone said, 
you know, it's a good thing to do. Or someone said, I'll give you a hundred bucks. I'm changing my behavior because I literally trained my brain to be cognizant of where I'm putting my belongings. And then over time, seeing that, oh, this is a lot better. <laughs> I've just saved two hours of my days not running around trying to watch it. <laughs> so would you say that it has to do with having the right reason behind instead of just doing it because John told me so it's the, the reason the, the actual purpose behind you do it is very clear to you. And that's why you're doing it because you're like, it'll save me two hours of time, not because that's the right thing to do. Cause that's not really what's working here. And right. is that kind of what you're saying with dogs that yeah. you do as well? You're finding the right reason to give them to perform the activity. Yeah. Hmm. They decide their own reason. And I, um, adapt my program and my exercises, my platform skills, what I adapt that to the reason why they're doing it. Mm. And that's what I've learned how to do. So it's not actually all that complicated. And also because it's dogs, it's um, quite, um, it, it, it's different for every dog, depending on the reason, but it is not complicated to apply on a daily basis. Mm, interesting. Okay. But it's but getting back to your, you know, place and people, they do, they have perceptions just like we do. You know, they might be fine with people in a dog park because their perception is that there's people walking around there. They have mm -hmm. dogs, there's dogs, they can wrap their head around people in a dog park, but then you go to a different area where they're not expecting to see people or they're not expecting you know, even their own home, they could know someone from the dog park. And then that person comes in their home and their perception is, no, you're not supposed to be in my home. Right. And that would be similar to some of the examples you've given where what we've talked about and people's perception. So they might go into a bar and everybody's running around screaming and drunk and dancing and having a good time, but they have no problem with it. Then they go into a library and everybody's doing that. And, and it's, you know, and, and, and they're, <laughs> <laughs> because they're not expecting that to happen. And then they find out that the library is being used as a movie shoot for a movie scene. And then all of a sudden their brain changes again. Right. So they're provided with information. So it habits. Yeah. Habits are also, I think, a lot based on perception. So when you think something should happen at a certain time or where it should happen, and then you're right, you, you change your behavior, but you also create, create habits as to what should happen. And dogs do that too. So they'll have a certain time of day that they think they should be walked or they'll watch what their person's putting on shoes wise, if they're putting on heels versus running shoes versus rollerblades versus dog walking shoes. Interesting. So they're paying attention to all those things as they're doing them. If they see the dog walking shoes being put on, that's kind of like a, a trigger or a cue in relation to people doing a certain thing at a certain place. That's like, oh, I'm going for a dog walk. That's right. And then okay. that gets into routines, mm -hmm. which is also habit. So people have a habit of walking their dog at the same time. So then mm -hmm. the dog has that habit. And then for some reason, 
they have a change in schedule that they that they just can't help mm-hmm. or even the weather for example and they just can't go how easily can you override that habit or that routine without it being a disaster for some people they can't even do that it's very stressful for some dogs it is so you need to be able to change your mindset to say it's okay that i didn't go to the gym today mm. You know, so as much as it's about good habits it's or bad habits and you don't want to, you want to change bad habits. If you have a habit of, you know, always going to the gym and then you can't that day, sometimes that can be really stressful for people or you know more about that than I do, obviously. Yeah. To relate the, the solution to that in relation to going and doing something on a regular basis and then not being able to do it for a day, the, the general rule is never miss two. So if you miss one, make sure you don't miss it again. And that's how you right. can kind of alter that. And it's, it's actually one of the best rules that I've, I've applied into my own life because it's very accurate. Things do get in the way problems do occur. And sometimes you can't do anything about it that day, but in a 48 hour time frame, if you're doing it in day by day, or if it's every other day, then you have 72 hours to get that thing done, then it's much more possible. Even if you're only doing it for five minutes, there's literally days where I, I read, but it's only for 30 seconds, but it doesn't matter that I'm doing at the time. It's that I'm, I'm making sure that I'm putting in my repetition of reading because being literate has little to do with how much I'm reading. It has to do with the fact that I am consistently learning new words. Yes. And I was going to say, it's a lot about learning a language. So they'll say, you know, just try to do at least 10 minutes or 15 minutes every day. And then, you know, one day you get an hour and woohoo. So that, so that, that is, and it, and if you can't, it, it is a brain space too, because if you can't go for a run, I mean, I'm in Canada where it can be extremely cold. (laughs) <laughs> for an extended period of time, yes. but I might do a different exercise <laughs> inside. Right. So it's, it's, you know, I might, I've gone far more than 48 hours with being able to go for a run, but I'm doing different things inside. And so it allows my brain to be okay. With those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One so thing yeah, that so I, can... go what, ahead. Yeah. One thing no, I wanted to ask you was, in relation to having a dog not get into that emotional state of being panicked and so they pee on the floor, are you basic? You're you're basically, from what I'm getting, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, you're identifying which one of the triggers, whether it be time, place, people, previous situation, or emotional state that they're going into, you're identifying one of them and you're preventing them from getting into that state so that they don't do that action. Is that accurate or no? Yes. And that's a really good observation or question because when I'm working with my clients with their dog, there could be a couple different triggers or cues that the same, they might not see it as the same behavior, but the dog's brain is in the same place. The reason for that behavior you know, in one case, they might hide, in another case, might lunge and bark, or you commonly, the, uh, just like people, the dog will do the same behavior because people will tend to, um, you know, bite their nails or um, 
be very quiet when they're nervous and other people will be very chatty when they're nervous. People tend to have habits that they do when they go into it. But we might not know which one will get quote unquote fixed first. So it might be the the time or the place or the person. One of those it's going to click in with first. And then we have that transferable skill and we practice that brain. But first of all, we practice it in times where the dog isn't nervous or scared. And then we apply it to the 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 that skill set. So we're not transferring the reward, we're transferring the skill set, the brain change. And you know, my clients might say to me, Oh my, my dog is horrible in this situation. It's like at the unth. But for some reason, that's the one where the dog clicks over first and the brain clicks over and that's the one that actually they get it. So they might say they're kind of reactive to, to people, but they're really reactive to dogs. We might actually find success with the dogs first and the people second, and that might just be based on a number of different factors, um, a number of different factors, partly where the dog's brain is might not be the same with dogs or people, but also just teaching opportunities and and when dogs are around or people and a number of different things. But yes, once you get one, then you take that transferable skill to the these other factors that are causing the brain to go into that place. Mm. So it would be the same with people. If you're eating habits and you're trying to trying to change your eating habits, you might, or even smoking, you might be able to, to find success in the morning and the day, but the evening. <laughs> it just go it all goes to hell it completely right? so you, disappeared so you, yeah <laughs> exactly so you're going to get success at certain places and times first mm. and then you go carry on from there yeah yeah i agree with you there and that's a big part of it too because during certain times of the day like i know that it, i think it took me about two years to fix my sleeping habits so that i was consistently going to sleep at a good time frame instead of two in the morning. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And, and, and going back to the tree analogy, that was a habit that I had developed over so many years that it took a long time for me to break that habit more than smoking. Actually smoking cigarettes was harder, but it was faster, but fixing my sleeping habits was easier, but it took longer. That is so interesting. So why did you want to switch your sleeping habits? Did you feel it was bad to go to bed at two o'clock or why did you feel that habit need to be changed? I know that when I get more sleep, I operate better. Like I think better, I'm in a better mood. I'm easier to get along with. I understand things easier. And I, one of the things that pointed out to me, I don't know if this is actually true. I looked into this a little bit, but somebody said to me that when you're sleep deprived, it's like having early stages of Alzheimer's or dementia. And I could see how that was true because my forgetfulness would be more. And I would, it, it was just obvious to me that that was true, but I don't know if it actually was, but that wasn't, that was one of those things that was just enough for me to get educated on like you were talking about earlier, where you just have the right information and you're like, oh, I'll just switch it over. That's interesting. So you, you did have a reason you wanted to be more on the ball and, and 
and you correlated it with your bad sleeping habits, <laughs> your poor sleeping habits. <laughs> and I guess you slept fewer hours if you went to bed at two. Then, so it wasn't like you just slept in later and got the same number of hours. You actually got a worse sleep and less sleep. But yes, absolutely, sleep is. You just can't function as well, or I believe that anyway. And I, I'm not a great sleeper. And even mm. if I go to bed and get four hours sleep, and then I'm up for three, and then I get another three, or or you know, so I'm still bouncing around that six and a half, seven hours. If it's a solid six and a half, seven, I find I'm better. And so when you're I getting stay is, like long term, like getting a long period of of sleep versus cut into into pieces. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting. I think changing a habit, there has to be a reason and it has to make sense to that person. And that's why I just love CBT for dogs because it mm -hmm. really makes sense to the dog. A lot of times my clients don't even know why what we did worked. They still <laughs> don't quite get it, but it does work because it makes sense to the dog. And I think that just hits home so much with what you're talking about where it has to be something that's important to the person. They have to see the value in changing that habit. And then whether they get the ability to change it just based purely on education or on reward that, you know, you get a, you know, a child that, well, not a child, but a young adult, a youth gets an extension on their curfew or something like that. That's your conditioning methods whether it's repetition, which is conditioning to, or whether it's CBT, which just provides a change in mindset. It, it has to make sense to the person. It has to be the, the right one for them. There has to be that, that reason to want to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can you give me a fairly common example of things you would run into with a dog? Like he pees on the floor, like what would be just like more of a generalized experience that you've had. This dog does this action. What is the cognitive therapy that you use to say, okay, how do we fix this problem from occurring? Cause the dog's obviously not doing it all the time. He's only doing it when he's getting into the, this state. Uh, well, I can't dog train on this. <laughs> the cool thing about cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy is it actually um, I mean, all therapy requires application, but literally we start with platform skills uh -huh. and then the changes that occur decipher the direction that we go. So it's not like conditioning. So when you go to puppy school, they can, you know, right from wrong, good from bad. The dog does a good behavior reward. The dog does the unwanted behavior and whatever you would do after that is dependent on so many different factors and people. And, you know, some people do nothing when the dog does bad behavior. So you can, and when you go to a puppy school, you can, you know, know this, is what we're going to do the first week, second week, third week, like it's laid out for you with cognitive behavioral therapy. As you're applying these skill sets where you're just catching the brain at easier, smaller times, there's changes that occur that then decipher the next day step and the next step. So I know with my program, when my client gets back to me and says, okay, we spent four days doing these exercises and these are the changes that we've seen, that's going to determine for me the next step. So it's a little bit like one of those books, you know, 
if you want Sally to take the train, turn to page 72. And if you want Sally to take the bus, you know, so it, I, I can't really get into it too much. And also those platform skills depend on the dog and the reason for the behavior. So when a dog, for example, would, would just, ah, pees on the floor. Um, there's a difference between a cue or a trigger or a routine. So maybe it's because their routine changed and they're scared because that routine changed. They could be scared of an actual person or they could be scared because they're going into a new environment. So you're always going to proactively prevent that fear with your skill set, but how it's taught and how it is applied depends on on the dog and again it's not difficult it's just individual so um a little bit if i were to give an example it'd be a little bit like asking a nutritionist what they would recommend so they're going to say as a general eat more fruit and vegetables i'm not a nutritionist but let's just say <laughs> it's fairly safe and then if you ask oh can you give an example and they said well you know eat carrots and then these people just walked away and ate carrots that's not really what they're saying you know it it, it it's not difficult but they have to start somewhere so let's say the nutritionist said you know take go from 10 coca-colas a day down to 2 and instead of eating chocolate at night have an orange and say the people could do that they could actually wrap their head around that and they could actually do it and then they got back to their nutritionist and said, well, I'm sleeping better. And I've noticed that my nails are growing more or something like that. Or, um, you know, I, I haven't really lost any weight, which was my goal. But I'm finding my skin is better and I'm sleeping better. So, for example, so based on those changes, the nutritionist is going to know what direction to go and what was working, and what wasn't. And based on the platform advice or basic advice that she gave. And then she's going to know based on that feedback, what direction to go. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah. It sounds like it's one of those situations where every situation is very specific. And because of the specific, because of the specific situation, and because of the dog itself and potentially because of the owner and because of potentially because of the house, it's really hard just to pinpoint the one thing because it could be seven different things. Right. So if, if a dog was peeing in a house, I would, I, I would have probably 10 to 12 questions that I'd ask. And those would be uh, okay. sort of, where is the dog peeing? When is the dog peeing? And in your example of what happened just before the dog peed and what did you do when the dog peed and what did the dog do when you did whatever it is that you did? Uh-huh. Uh, so what we're narrowing down there is, is the dog simply just not house trained? Uh, Maybe. If okay. so, then you can use your <laughs> conditioning methods because conditioning methods work amazing for house training. So if the dog just simply doesn't know it's wrong to go in the house. But by the time people contact me, They've probably tried conditioning methods, standard, you know, take the dog, catch the dog before they pee, take them outside. They pee outside, good dog, they get a treat or they get to play or they get to go for a walk, whatever, you know, pats or whatever you want to reward them. So conditioning methods for standard house training works really well. But based on the questions I ask, 
you know, if the, if the dog's taking off and, and peeing behind a couch, they might know it's wrong to pee in the house, but they don't know how to get outside. If the dog is peeing by the back door, but not letting the person know so the person's on their computer, they could have got up and let the dog out, but the dog goes to the back door wanting out, but doesn't correlate getting the person. Then we're actually going to work more on uh, bonding and communication skills versus house training versus fear. So if the dog is fearful to go outside, then we're dealing with fear. So these questions based on where the dog is peeing and what the dog is doing is then going to direct that uh, those platform skills because the platform skills are going to be correlative to what we're, what we're trying to address in the dog's brain. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It makes sense. You're identifying what the dog is having a problem with, why it's having a problem with that thing. And then you're addressing that behavior. And it makes sense because you ha- you've had enough experience and understanding and knowledge to say, okay, these things are happening because of these reasons. Now let's fix that particular problem. So that way you can address that particular thing. That's right. And then when you get habits with people, just like with dogs, their behaviors, sometimes you can ask them questions and they, they don't know. So sometimes some of the questions I ask my clients are not necessarily correlative, but just like people, they can kind of, without being robots, but they sort of fit into categories. So I might ask questions completely not to do with what they're asking me to fix, but it would let me know whether that dog is prone to to having some other forms of anxiety or um, whether that dog is silly and happy and, and just being, being, you know, the guy at the part of the lampshade on his head. Or whether that dog, you know, is maybe only nervous in certain situations, but not in other situations, just like people. We're not nervous in every single situation we're in, um, but we might get get into a habit of being nervous when the, the place is new or when there's new people. But we're not nervous at every dinner party. If we go to a dinner party and we know everybody there, we're not. But if we go to a dinner party and more than half the people are new, we might be. So it's not the dinner party. It's not the act of going to a dinner party. It's the fact that there's new people there. So you can ask questions that, you know, aren't necessarily correlative to what they're asking me to fix, but it gives me an idea of the dog's behavior in in general. And then that, that might help us. And some people have only had their dog a day or two. So they're not going to know everything. And other people have had their dog from puppy. So they're going to have a better understanding if they've had the dog for a while versus the dog who's been having it, the owners who've had the dog for two days. Right. So as far as habits with people, you might talk to them about that and say, well, are you in the habit of doing that behavior in other places as well? Mm -hmm. How do you, you know, if you feel it's out of stress, why are you not stressed in this situation or that one? Or why do you need a cigarette here? What, What is it? Like, I like, I like how you combine all your five. I mean, the habit might be smoking, but that might be correlative to a place or a time. Mm -hmm. And then you might say to them, but when you go on vacation, do you smoke more or do you smoke less? That might Mm -hmm. tell you some things, right? Yeah. And that commonly happens where when you change the, the, the word is called context and you can view it as 
the if you look at a sentence and people are told to figure out the definition from the context, it relates very similar to situations. So based off the sentence, it's supposed to this one word that you don't know is supposed to mean this thing. It's similar to being in a place and you have the table and the chair and the desk like the library is a good example of this. The context for library is to read and be quiet. People naturally go into a whisper tone when they enter a library, specifically because of the context, the place they're going in. And that relates to the place and it relates to the pre the it relates to the situation they're going into because they're entering in to this place that they've gone into so many times. And habitually they get quieter when they're in a library because they've been told shh, which is a lot of conditional therapy in a sense. They've just had it so many times that that's what they start doing naturally. When you take something like smoking, for example, and people smoke very regularly, but then they get on a plane, let's say they smoke seven cigarettes in a day, they get on a plane and then they can't smoke three of those cigarettes during that time frame. That's the context changing. And then they therefore don't have the same desire to smoke anymore because something has changed. And that's the problem with most habits that go on long-term is that like smoking is an easy example. They have so many context cues that relate to them smoking cigarettes. They're driving down the road and they see somebody else smoking a cigarette. They are with their friends who smoke. They go to work in the smoking designated area. And they get stressed. They want to smoke. It's a certain time of day. They want to smoke. You can basically have all five of those triggers constantly interacting with someone on a regular basis, and they've lost the battle before they have even had a chance to realize they're in this hole of, I've been smoking for seven years and I can't quit. And they don't know why they can't quit either. That's so interesting. And it's interesting about the the plane because in a sense in the dog world or how I would put it, that's almost avoidance. So it, or prevention. Now, when you're talking cognitive behavioral therapy, proactive prevention is stopping the brain from going into that place. It's not physically putting the dog in the crate so that they can't pee or they choose not to pee because they're in a crate, for example. So that's not, it's very big in the dog world that we need to proactively prevent, not react to the behavior, but conditioning methods are designed to react. That's how they are developed, how they're designed. So when a good behavior is done, you react positively. When a bad behavior is done, you react negatively to discourage that behavior. How that is done is, again, not relevant to this because it's different with everybody, but um Prevention in the dog world uh, would be like putting up a, a, a barrier or a gate or just, um, you know, putting the dog in the crate where they don't pee so that you can pick them up and take them out. So with a plane, with putting a, a person, not putting a person, a person puts themselves on a plane. <laughs> Oops. Um, so if they go on a plane, and they can't smoke, 
versus being at their office where they know that they can can leave and, and go to that smoking designated area. So they're on a plane and they can't smoke. No one around them is smoking. So none of those triggers are really there. But is it really changing their mindset? Is it changing their perception or is it simply prevention? And if so, couldn't it actually increase their stress and increase their desire to smoke because they're they're they just can't and even though there's no triggers around them um like a pack of smokes sitting there that they could pick up or another person smoking so in the in the with dogs i find you know what's called avoidance or distraction so if if a dog is nervous of a bike you just distract it with treats so that they don't see it it can actually increase that unwanted behavior we need to actually change work with the dog so that they can be in the situation not so that they're being flooded and it's not like hail mary and drop them in it you you have your transferable skills and you work through it you work up to it but um you know, maybe if someone was going to be going on a plane and they couldn't smoke, would it be beneficial for them to try to go five hours in their workday and build up an hour, two hours, three hours and, and not go out to that designated workplace so that when they do get on that five hour plane trip, they're not stressing? Is that something that you would? Yeah, completely. And this applies heavily to alcoholics who are trying to say, okay, I'll stop tomorrow. The key to stopping tomorrow is to reduce the amount that you're currently taking today. So that way the next day won't be as hard. Specifically with alcohol, you go through withdrawal symptom. It's the the reason why people get angsty and stressed out and have the shakes, delirium, delirium tremens as it's called, is because they're having alcohol withdrawal symptom. And in relation to what you were talking about earlier with, does that increase their desire to have the thing? It depends, but I'm going to tell you a story about how, I believe it was in World War II, a lot of people were using heroin. It was very accessible. People were shooting up on a regular day-to-day basis. Everybody in the military from in those areas, the soldiers were getting high together constantly. But when they came back to the US, there was a very high significant drop of people who used heroin. And it makes a lot of sense because you took away all of the context. They're not there with their friends. They have no way to get it. There is no reward to do it anymore. And so you take away all of the things and that causes someone to be in a better state. The exact opposite is true for someone who goes to rehab because all rehab is doing is is removing all of their context and cues for that 90 days or 180 days or however long. And then they go back to the place where they have all of the cues and triggers that were so instilled. So that is commonly why that type of therapy doesn't work. If you wanted to get someone to change their life the way you would actually have to do it, and I've heard this 
the guy from London Real talks about this in his in a couple of of the interviews he he shares with people that the way he stopped his heroin addiction is he moved states. And that's how people get out of their addictions. And that's how I was able to get out of my addiction too, is I transitioned places. I stopped hanging out with the same people. I was naturally cutting off the triggers. I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't aware that I was reducing. I was, I wasn't actively choosing to not hang out with people. I just coincidentally (laughs) wasn't hanging out with people as much. And so I was, yeah. So I was cutting out my own triggers. And this is what happens with other people as well when they're reducing and having significant change. And that's why AA meetings work. They're changing all of the context and giving themselves, they're still stressed out and they still want to drink, but instead of drinking, they call their sponsor instead of going to the bar. That is so interesting. And I think that's why People are so surprised, my clients, when I when we start working together, because they have set in their mind what their dog. Oh, no, no, Billy, you don't understand. My dog's going to do this. My dog's you, you don't get it. And then once we start working together, their their dog surprises them on some of the changes and decisions. We're providing their dog with options and the ability to make decisions. And it's interesting what decisions their dogs make when they're allowed, when they're given the skills and tools. So similar to what, what you're saying, you know, you, you subconsciously made decisions in your better interest or, or were they, or were they not, or choosing to call your AA um, guide or support person, you're making those decisions and you're making that decision to not go to the bar because you've been provided with the skills and tools. Nobody's forcing you to make it. But you're, as you're going through this process, you're choosing to make those decisions. That's what I provide with the dogs. And it's, it's amazing to see my clients see that in their dog and they're surprised. But it's the exact same brain space. And it, that, that's a really cool example. On There was something I just said was a really cool example. Anyway, that whole thing was, <laughs> there's glad, just so I'm, much going on. But yeah. That was great. I'm glad you enjoyed that. And I wanted to ask you about that because a lot of what happens with people who go to AA AA meetings is it's called the golden rule of habit change because when someone develops a habit, it never actually goes away. When, when I think of smoking a cigarette now, I think of playing the harmonica, not picking up a cigarette. And the same thing happens when people go to AA meetings, instead of going to the bar, they're going to a meeting. I, from what I understand, they're supposed to go to a meeting for like three months every day. And it's only through the action of showing up that they go through this transition. So this is so interesting because uh, when I work with highly aggressive dogs and say they're in a client or say they're in a foster, a foster home, and I'm working with the foster and the dog has come in from a horrible situation and is So then we get this dog so that the rescue organization is confident rehoming the dog based on. So the assessment doesn't come first. The assessment is, I guess, similar. It doesn't matter how much you drink, whether you're drinking 10 bottles or five bottles, doesn't matter how many times the dog's bit. That's irrelevant. You just have to start somewhere and you have to start. So the assessment is 
with whether it's a person or a dog, that the behavior is not conducive to living in society, for example, or however. It doesn't matter how bad it is. So once we start working together and they start seeing changes and and it's getting improving and and now it's safe and great and that the the rescue organization, okay, well, let's try and find an adopter that is suitable to this dog and suitable uh, lifestyle for this dog. Those skills actually have to be transferred. So this is getting back to what you were saying. It's like, you still have to know it's it's not as though it ever leaves the dog. If you don't, if if you do something or put the dog in a position, their brain is going to go right back to what they thought initially. You need to know how to work with that dog and how to click that brain over. You know how to click your own brain over because you think of a harmonica. That's what you right. But if someone else, so dogs do. They learn to do it for themselves, and they learn to do it. So that going to that place where they would bite occurs less and less and less and less. And if it starts to go there, it comes back quicker. But the people still have to know how to do that as well. The dog has to know that the people know how to do that. So there's where you're getting that third element in there. So the the adopter has to start communicating and relating to that dog, not just being nice or being patient or giving treats, but actually communicate in the same way that the foster did so that the dogs, oh, you know what I know. You know how to communicate with me. You know what to do when we go into a new situation or you know how to click my brain over. And so, yes, the dog can do it more on their own. And some dogs just come right around and, and they're fine. But a lot of times it's a matter of, knowing how to do that. And it's exactly what you're doing in your brain or people are doing in their brain and making those right choices. Yeah, spot on. And it's neat to see when people can make the changes. And I think that a real big part of it is actually having the desire to do it because someone who has no desire to quit smoking but you're giving them this information and stuff, it's never going to (laughs) work. Right. That's exactly true. That's it. They have to see the value in it. They have to want to, and they have to see the value. And that's, that's so true with dogs too. Mm. I mean, they can say it's always worked for me to, you know, if I snap out at somebody, they go away, you know, Uh, well, you're 120 pound dog. And if you snap out at them and they go away, mm. but the answer isn't, you know, to find someone to sit there and tackle the dog and say, no, you snap and I'm still coming at you. You can't, you you can't do that either. That's not right either. You can't just, yeah, there there's ways exactly. Sorry, I interrupted you there, but that's exactly, it, it has to make sense to them and it has to, they have to see the value in not needing to do that and, and, and see the value in it for themselves. And you certainly don't do that in an aggressive manner. You know, you can't, I guess that would be sort of like in the old days, washing their mouth out with soap or something uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. or sort of forcing or so that they see the negative. And it's like, mm, you know, I don't know. What is that making your kids smoke a pack of cigarettes? You catch them smoking a cigarette. So you get them to smoke a pack a day or, or a pack <laughs> off the top. I mean, that's not going to work either. Right. No, I mean, right. It, it has to, has to make sense. And, has to start with them wanting to to see the value. Yeah. And I think part of 
seeing the value is when you can educate someone well enough behind why they would make a change is really where, and this was what you were talking about too, with cognitive therapy, you're finding their, the reason why they're going to change or transition over to something, which will give them the value of doing the thing. And I find that if you give someone enough education on something, they will naturally start to say, oh, I get it now. But it's, it's, it's also more than that, because when you, in my opinion, just from working with people, it's you, you have to make sure that their system is set up in place. So that way, even when they know they're not supposed to do it, they aren't arriving with temptation in front of them. It's kind of like saying, okay, cookies are super bad for you. Make sure you never eat them because of 55 different health reasons. It's one thing to say that to somebody, but it makes no difference if you're just going to leave a plate of cookies out in front of them every single day. And you're like, look, these are free. They smell super good. You can have them whenever you want. Like that doesn't work anymore because the system is no longer correct. You have to make sure that and this, and I've noticed this when I'm talking with some people, they, they say they're, ha- they're having problems with the amount of sugar they're eating, but yet they have food that is cookies, ice cream, cake in their fridge. So by default, they're not even letting themselves have success. You have to make sure that your operating s- system is correct before you start penalizing yourself. You know, it's like telling the, the drug addict, the drug addict is telling himself, I'm bad for doing drugs. I'm bad for doing drugs. I shouldn't do drugs. Oh, look, drugs, because they have so much reward around the idea of drugs that they can't help but do them. Because even though they're telling themselves, I should never do that. I should never do that. I should never do that. By the time they see the pipe or the drug itself, they have such a high craving, their craving is on plus 50 and they can't stop themselves from reaching out and grabbing the thing because they know what the reward is. And the reward is so powerful that they will resist. They can't resist the temptation to stop. Yeah. I, I, yeah, this is so interesting. And I, yeah, it goes in so many different directions. I feel like I've gone in all these different directions. I hope mm-hmm. I've been focused enough. But the 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 mindset, what that mind does can be the reward right there. So they're looking at those drugs and they're thinking, I know where my brain and my body goes when I take that. And that's just so great. But at some point, they have to not take that drug in order to feel the happiness that comes when they don't, right? So yes, having it not sitting there on the counter could allow for that, which would sort of be avoidance. But on the same note, they can probably go and get, or at least a box of cookies pretty easily at the corner store. So they also have to have those skills and tools to not go get it. But with where I I love what you were saying about the mindset because sometimes the reward for for probably people too, but for the dogs, is that just that fact of not going into a state of panic. So even though they know biting achieves their goal 
of keeping somebody at bay or say a street dog away from their food that they've acquired. And then they bring that to their, and they're now in a new home and they're bringing that, that thought pattern and that experience that they need to do that in order to maintain their happiness. Now it might not seem logical to people. It's like, well, the dog's getting food every day, doesn't need to do it. But they've learned that that action maintains their happiness. So now they're sitting um, on the couch, which I'm totally fine with. So they're sitting on the couch with their one human and another dog comes up and they're thinking, okay, that dog's going to get patted and take away my happiness because I'm getting patted by my person. So they're going to lunge out and bark out to keep that dog at bay because they've learned that that works. But that that would be where we would build the skills and tools that the person manages the situation calmly. And so the dog learns that, that you don't need to do that in order to continue to sit on the couch and get patted. But you can't just do that by frantically patting both dogs. There, there has to be calm manageability. You have to gain some skills and tools to do that. But when it's out of fear, so they're just like, I have to have those drugs or I have to have that. You know, they're just, they're, they're kind of panicking and, and people do it too. And they just have to have that. When that brain doesn't go to that place and it, it proactively stops going to that place, it has to go to another place. It's a brain. It has to do something else. So if it goes to a place where, oh, I'm just, I'm relaxed and, and I'm okay. And I, I kind of like this happy space I'm in and I kind of, like this happy place that my brain is in, that can be the reward right there where they just don't feel that they have to panic and freak out in order to be okay. So again, that goes back to the reasons. Are they lunging out just because, haha, I know this works, or they actually just feel that they have to do it. And it, it is two different things, but it's the same thing where maybe that that reward is just 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 feeling okay yeah and commonly what's happening is when people are doing drugs they they want that feeling of feeling okay that's the that's the actual reward they're seeking it's not to getting high any longer and that's con and that is what right. the the aa system is set up to do instead of drinking because you're stressed out you're calling someone because you're stressed out all of the things that are causing your upset or the reason you're wanting to drink to begin with is being handled the same, is actually handling the same way. You just have a different outlet. So instead of the bar, you're calling the person. And, and for drug addicts, for example, what I've seen is some people will switch from drinking to smoking weed. And yes, the thing, and the thing is, common. yeah, and and they see it as it's a better alternative, but they're still receiving the same reward of having a body high, right? And that gets into an interesting conversation on probably going down a different road again. But um, so I'm a cardio junkie, mm -hmm. and that you know, gets a, gets a 
brain state going. And some people, it's a, you know, you can, it's not strictly just to be physically thin or in shape or whatever, right? It's actually a brain state that you go to. And is one doing, is one socially more acceptable than the other? You know, whether you get there from weed or alcohol or going for an intense workout, you know, just some are more socially acceptable, but it is all goes back to that feeling that you're trying to achieve. You're trying to achieve a feeling, right? And then you can actually over-exercise instead of relying on it, you know, and is that bad? Is it bad to rely on it? You know, there's just, so a lot of it, I guess, if if you were to put it in the dog world again, I mean, what is socially acceptable? What isn't? There's so many rules. I'm not a rule-oriented dog trainer. I don't care about rules. I could care less if the dog eats on my client's dining room table, but it's like, do you have calm manageability? Is it done? You know, is it done so you feel comfortable? Is it done so that the, the dog, you know, it's, to me, it's just more, whether you're just in a comfortable state and the dog's in a comfortable state and you're just making educated decisions and and living your life with your dog in a way that they understand you and you understand them and it's and it's educated decisions. Interesting. Do you often feel that you are sometimes training the the people more than the dogs? 100% yeah. <laughs> I feel like and my clients will say this to me all the time that their dog already knows it. And they'll say that to me, they'll say, you're training me. But that's also because there's not a lot of right and wrong with cognitive behavioral therapy. My clients have to be creative. They have to understand why they're doing the exercises and they have to adapt them. So there's the formula that I've created and that formula, I don't teach it to every client. I don't teach the, they can run out and train other people's dogs. They're not learning the formula as a whole. I'm adhering to the formula and teaching it to them to meet their needs. But what happens is they start thinking, I know what Billy's going to say, and I know how to do this. And I have my skills and I have my platform skills and I can do this with my dog. And I know what I'm going to do the next time that we go camping with my dog or that we go to the dog park and, and they start to get it themselves. And that's when it really, you know, the light bulb goes on and, and I can see it and they see the changes in their dog and it just click. So yes, they, sometimes they, they don't really get what they're doing, but for the ones that do, it just is, it's this, they just, they suddenly get it. And it's a beautiful thing to see. So I I guess it's a little bit different when, than when you're doing it with people, because there's one less step, right? So I actually have to, if I just had the dog, it would be um, more like a, you know, I could do it, but I, the people have to learn, you know, they have, they have to know how to do it because they're living with their dog. And I, and I think it's such a beautiful thing when they learn how to do it and they see it happen and it doesn't take long. It's not difficult, but it is. Yeah. It, they, they actually see these changes in their dog. It's, it's really cool. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, cool. Well, Billy, I feel like we're at a pretty good point. I feel like we've definitely shared some topics between us and it's been enlightening for both of us. It's always interesting talking with you just because of the, I feel like I, I definitely get something about it out of the conversations we have. It seems you do as well. So it's I do. It's amazing. <laughs> I love what you do. I think habits is such a, 
um, interesting topic. It's so much deeper than we really think it is. We just think it's a, a habit, good habit, bad <laughs> habit. It's, it's not. It's all about the brain, right? It's so interesting. Yeah, no, yeah. I just love speaking with you, Ian, or chatting or oh yeah, shooting the shit, all the stuff uh, that we're doing. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it just totally blows my mind, too, because initially when even I fell into it, too, a habit is just something that you do re- repetitiously a number of times over and over and over again. But when you can really break down a habit into the different pieces and parts and functions, it's like, oh, this is why I act the way I do and how I act that way. And then when you it, it's I, it's it's so unique because when you understand your own triggers and cues so much, you can then start to become aware of them. And then you say, okay, I shouldn't do this because it causes me to do this. (laughs) And it doesn't always work, but it is, it's good to know. (laughs) It is. It is. And I think you're right where it's the admitting it. Or, you know, bringing it to light and then and then saying, yeah, damn, we do do that. And that does cause this and I shouldn't do that. And then doing something about it and changing the mindset to change the habit. And it it is. And I think we see it in other people, maybe admitting it in ourselves. It's sometimes a little more difficult, but we see it in in other people, too. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, everybody does. I think I, I don't know. I mean, you know better than I do, but my guess is everybody does it to a certain extent. It does like have a, have a, yeah, have things that they do that the cause and effect and, and we know it, we know oh, yeah. when our brain is starting to think something or when we're doing something, it's not necessarily a bad habit, but no, right. Yeah. I mean, we all have habits, whether they're subconscious or not, I think. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. More commonly subconscious. And the, and, and the thing that I've found is that if you can start, if you find a habit that you don't like, if you can start tracking it on a piece of paper, just make a little check mark every time, like I'm helping someone reduce the amount they smoke currently. And what I'm having them do is write down just a check mark of, of every time they have the desire to smoke. And if they can just do that enough so they can become aware of it, they'll start to understand is it the time? Is it the place? Is it the people? Is it the situation that I was just in? Or is it the emotional state that I was just in? Because it could be the stress and anxiety that is actually causing you to want to smoke. It could be the variety of them too. You're around other people that do it. But when you can, but the thing is, is some people do know. Some people already already are so aware that they're mm-hmm. like, well, I have this problem and I know it exists. The next thing you have to do is get an accountability partner because you're not keeping mm-hmm. yourself accountable. So you have to find somebody else to do it for you. (laughs) (laughs) And that gets to who you're around too, right? Uh Because if you're around people that have no desire to be your accountability partner and they're, you know, here, have a beer, here, have a cigarette. Yeah, they're your smoking buddy, then yeah, Yeah. that's not conducive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I guess that's getting back to me throwing my stuff everywhere like Hurricane Billy. Yeah. You know, I need to, it's almost that check mark is what I do first. I need to do that for, and that's what's been helping. It's, it's like what you said about if, if they're check, if they, they have a check mark or do something before they pick up that cigarette, before I drop something, if, mm-hmm. if my brain can, then I'll change it. But I mean, if, if I lived with somebody who was a neat freak, I guess that would 
you know, that, that could help with that too. Right. But I don't, I live with dogs <laughs> and, <a cat. laughs> and they don't care. <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's interesting who you surround yourself with as well. Right. Yeah. Groups of people. Yeah. 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 You, oh my gosh. And you, and you just made me realize that I, cause it's, it's the idea is accountability partner, but the, the bigger concept is group. And when you have a group that holds certain standards, then you are more, you're, you're invisibly attracted to also hold those standards as well. Yes. Yes. And that's an interesting thing you were saying about a work environment. I know some people who only smoke at work Mm. because they have their smoke work buddies or whatever, and they go out and they chat and that's what they do, but they don't feel like standing outside alone or their partner or whoever they live with doesn't smoke. And so they just don't kind of want to go and stand outside alone and smoke. So they just uh, don't. I've, I've always found that funny, but they only smoke when they drink, when they never smoke when they're alone. Like that kind of stuff is, I always found that really not funny, interesting. Yeah. And it gets back to your five habits, reason for the habit. Uh-huh. Yeah. The, the smoking is caused from the drinking. So it, that's the previous situation. Right. Drinking and then they're smoking because or the environment. It might yep. just be that they're around people and yeah. Yeah, because that can play if I yeah, it's interesting with the five because they often cross connect too. So you're not just doing yeah. it because of one. It's yeah. might be three of them, and that's what's it's those three that make it this thing. Yeah, and that's the same with dogs. There's not well, I think you asked that question before. It's not just one specific. It's sort of, there's a number of different factors. Um, and like yourself, when when you get that information and you get that feedback, you know how to divvy it out and what to do with it and then how to take that information and, and get back with the uh, advice, solution, education, next step that they need to take, right? Based on that feedback that they've given back to you. So that's, yeah, that's what I do with dogs. Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> no, no, that was totally fun. We could talk forever, but yeah, I'm sure we can. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, We're good at sure that. We can. Yeah. No, this, this has been awesome. It's really great. Always great to talk to you. Yeah. yeah. You as well. Thanks so much to Ian Twelson. All the links for him are in the show notes. So let's talk about habits specifically for dogs. I want you to think about a trigger that results in a behavior, not an unwanted behavior, but actually a wanted one, such as picking up your car keys causes your dog to run to the door that leads to your garage, or turning off your TV at night causes your dog to go to the back door for his last outside time before bed, or putting on your walking shoes sends your dog to the leash closet. In these situations, your dog's brain is computing a trigger that determines his behavior that in his mind achieves his goal. And it does. He's exactly right. There's nothing wrong with what he does and there's no reason to change that behavior. That's why these are considered teaching opportunities. And in these teaching opportunities, we insert commands, for example, stay or wait, that override that natural reaction. And then we would release using some kind of release command. Of course, all these commands have to be taught earlier at easier times. 
but a common release command is okay or go or free or break, and it might be taught to get to the food bowl or out of a vehicle, for example. So when these are applied properly with the proper timing and at the right teaching opportunities for each individual dog, these become our transferable skill. So why would we do this? Why would we upset, so to speak, routines that are working for us? Teaching opportunities occur when the dog is not reacting in a way that is unwanted or a result of stress or fear. These opportunities allow us to strengthen the transferable skills, whatever those might be. Because with CCBT, the transferable part is the exercises, not the reward. These exercises, when performed properly and reaching the cognitive side of the brain, allow the dog to make decisions based on options. We need to practice resetting that brain at these easier situations where the dog can do no wrong and there's no stress or fear. Think of it this way. When a dog does a behavior, whether that's wanted or unwanted behavior, they're doing that based on learned behavior and emotions. That's what's driving that behavior. And in their mind, there's no difference between the two. They may know right from wrong or know that you prefer one behavior over the other, but they're choosing the behavior based on their ability to do so. They know that they can choose a behavior and they know it works in their favor. So we need to harness that ability that chooses behaviors. So the exercises that we're doing change the dog's perception of the person first. It changes their perception of their person's ability to recognize what is important to them and to calmly manage using transferable skills. Just like changing habits in people, it is necessary to reset the brain and think before reacting. Dogs love it. People love it. Our upward dogology formula is bonding, creative, adaptable, and effective. For more info, please listen to season one of this podcast, in particular the first four episodes where I talk about canine cognitive behavioral therapy, and visit uh, my website, www.upwarddogology.com. Follow Upward Dogology on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And on LinkedIn, I'm Billy Groom. Thanks again to Ian. That was so much fun. And a big shout out to our musicians. This episode featured the Jeff Murdoch Band, Brian John Harwood, and Open Strong. Enjoy your learning journey. Yeah, I wish I could hear what you're thinking. You can't say the words, but buddy, I'm listening. Just know that I'll never stay mad. You're still my good boy.